Welcome to Trails, Tales, and Spruce Tea. I'm your host today, Shalyn Jodry. Today we're going to hear from archaeologist Roger Lewis. Roger is the curator of ethnology at the Nova Scotia Museum in Halifax. I went to go visit him at the museum and we first spoke in his office as he showed some maps on his computer. He started with a little bit of context to our sense of history. First, we want to recognize the Mi'kmaq word Wedji Schaliadieg. Wedji Schaliadieg. We arose or sprouted from here. Linguist Bernie Francis reminds us that our ancestors sprouted from this landscape. Our cultural memory resides here in Mi'kma'ki. I'm trained in pre-contact archaeology. That's um, any archaeology prior to the arrival of French, the French on the shore here. And I strictly look at Mi'kmaq stuff thousands of years ago. Um, the oldest site we have is 13,500 years at Dicker at DeBert, and it runs right up to present. And so at one time we used to use um, we used to use these Western terms like um, they'd be foreign to you, they'd be foreign to a lot of people. We used to say, okay, the first people here were the Paleo people who were followed by the archaic people, who were followed by the woodland ceramic people, and who were followed by today's Mi'kmaq people. Well, that's like putting people in a block. That's like saying, okay, there were... The first people in Nova Scotia were the um, Morse Code people, <laughs> who were followed by the early Alexander Graham Bell telephone people, right. who were followed by early dial-up internet who now are replaced by high-speed fiber optics. Eh? So I went to our Mi'kmaq elders and I said, okay, this is what the book taught me at university. I said, but I don't think that's right. I said, now, you elders tell me how you see our presence here in Mi'kmaq, in Mi'kma'ki. So they replaced it with these terms, the ancient people, the not-so-recent people, recent people, and today's people, that's us. Roger took me on a little tour of the archaeological exhibit, which depicts the different regions and time periods between our ancestors' long history and settlement of this eastern region. There were four displays encased in glass, the museum was open to the public at the time of my visit, and all kinds of extra sounds came in and out of our conversation. The Sahaweg Ulnug, the ancient people. 
were the first few thousands of years from the earliest ancestors who sprouted with the landscape. It was about 13,500 years ago to about 10,000 years ago. In this particular collection of artifacts were excavated and found at the Burt, just outside of Truro, Nova Scotia, and that particular site. At one time, it would have been the oldest or ancient, you know, associated with the ancient people about 13,500 years ago. Mm -hmm. But a lot of work is being done in New Brunswick now. Oh, I don't that think I knew that. A lot of dates are matching. Oh, okay. So there was a few sites that the ancient yeah. people were settling. Yeah. But this is the only known site in Nova Scotia. Okay, the landscape would have been tundra type. Mm. And like you say, that's just after glaciation, you would have saw huge kind of megafauna, what they call megafauna, populating woolly mammoth, mm -hmm. mastodon type. There would have been caribou here, of course, for sure. This mm -hmm. here was a basically a hunting area, mm -hmm. likely in the migration route for caribou. The tools are very unique to this period because what they are is they're hafted on the bottom of the, the what we call the stem, where they're um, hafted to a, a pole, like you see right over here, mm -hmm. this large hunting spear. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the end that you wrap onto the stick was more blunt. Yeah, that, yeah. And okay. so you see a lot of gravers and wedges and perforators and drills in this period. Um, various types of knives that are very particular. If you saw, compared this material to say later periods, you'd really note the difference. It'd be like a jackknife and a hunting knife kind of difference. Mm -hmm. It's really that visual. Mm -hmm. The material's all local out of uh, maybe a long Parsboro shoreline, five islands, possibly coming from Blomet and Cape Split. Mm -hmm. And that's generally the distribution of that material. Mm -hmm. It's quite possible we would have a site of an equivalent date, but nobody knows. One's just speculating when you're talking about Gasper Lake area in the valley. Because you got to remember now, we're dealing with sea level rise. So about the time of this um, occupation at the Burt at 13,500, the water levels would have been much lower. Mm -hmm. So some of our sites are underwater, right? So, uh, yeah. As the landscape and people changed over so much time, we then call the next epoch the Mu Ausamik Ejigaweg Olnug, not so recent people which was between 10,000 years ago to about 3,000 years ago. The ecosystems had changed dramatically with the Earth's shifts and also with the ways the people were settling and living within those landscapes. This period is very distinct in its material, mm -hmm. um, climate, environment. You start seeing the shift from tundra to a more uh, mixed forest. So you have a very distinct, different type of tool. They kind of overlap a little bit, but not so much. You get um, large flake stone axes. Mm -hmm. You get these beautiful contracting stem um, projectile points, corner notched, side notched, um, various type of scrapers you get now. 
grooved axes, other ground stone um, tools like these bayonets. You see the little turtle. Do you think they were like totems? Yeah, they, they, they would be totems, yeah. Like on necklaces yeah. or things? And you see the shift from over when we were talking about the ancient people who were using handheld spears. Now you're seeing the development of things like the atlatl that propel spears. So it's very distinct. You see a mixture of material here. You get your agates, you get your jaspers, your chalcedonies. You also see what we call burial-related tools. Community members, when they're also mourning and grieving, somebody in the community is lost, they will leave very fine crafted tools and other objects that would appear of value in the burial with the people, right? And then on this panel it talks about the red paint burial. So red ochre was found on the, in the burials? Yeah, it's pretty common through this period and later periods. Roger said that it was common to see red ochre in a burial context in various ways, such as spread on the birch bark body shroud or sprinkled in the burial throughout. How would you describe what ochre really is? Ochre, the easiest way to describe it, when you're driving along a 100 series highway in the province of Nova Scotia and you look to the right and to the left of you as they're cutting through the stone mm -hmm. to plunk the 101, the 103, the 102, and you see those rusty oxidized stone mm -hmm. walls, those cuts, mm -hmm. that's... That's what ochre really is, is oxidized yeah. iron in yeah. rock. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that rusty reddish kind of orange color, that would be your red ochre. Mm -hmm. But the red ochre, ochre deposits, iron oxide deposits can come in large deposits. Okay. say that the historical period that we most recognize as the birth of Mi'kmaq customs, laws, philosophy, art, that we relate to and know as Mi'kmaq or Ulnu, is the period now called Gejigaweg Ulnug, the recent people. This would be about 3,000 years ago to about 500 years ago, just before the European exploration and trade relationships with our ancestors here. We call them recent in light of all that we have just covered, thousands of years of history and generations living in this land. By this time, they're consistently moving to rivers. Okay. In the early ancient people, paleo period, ancient people, they're on the tundra kind of um, environment. The not so recent people are generally kind of uh, dispersed mouth of rivers, heads of tides, but mm -hmm. now you get, they're using 
entire rivers. Okay. Yeah. And then all the way inland. All the way, they're starting to move. Yes, inland. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then you get to recent people, which is really defined by pottery. Pottery now makes an appearance here. It's not really something. It's not really something that a lot of Nova Scotians would think of associated with the Mi'kmaq ancestors as pottery. Yeah. Roger talked about the use of pottery in this period. He said that the ancestors were by this time period more stationary coastal villages in the summers, and inland camps for the winter moons, being strategic in how they used resources and when. The people were making pottery from the clay deposits. However, by the time of the European contact and trade, our Mi'kmaq ancestors started to replace the birch bark in clay pots for copper ones. Roger continued to talk in his office about history and the land, with two more youth listening in as well. To understand our history, we got to go back and we got to recreate it, right? So that's what I did as an archaeologist. I said, okay, what's the very simplest geographic determinant that influences how we use land? And a lot of people don't realize, but that's a water divide that separates the province of Nova Scotia, and the water runs to the Northumberland Atlantic. If you ever traveled down the Muscadabit-Stuyak River Valley, if you're coming from the Atlantic side or coming from the Truro side, all of a sudden in the middle of the province you get to this big hump, and that's your water divide, and it separates the water, right? Water. Instinctively, early Mi'kmaq people would have known where they were on the land because they wouldn't have had a compass, they wouldn't have had GPS, they wouldn't have had maps. Like all these stories that they hear would have been their little mental maps, right? They would have learned where to be on the land through stories, right? You hear about districts all the time, how there's seven districts, right? Mm -hmm. There'd be seven geographical districts based on watersheds now. There's 42, 46 different watersheds in the province of Nova Scotia. Then what I did, this is what they call a digital elevation map, and it just shows the highlands and the lowlands. Now those red dots are all the archaeological sites. All Those are only Mi'kmaq archaeological sites, so you can see where they lived and all along the major rivers and stuff like that. It shows that we lived on some of the most richest and diverse pieces of land in Nova Scotia. We were all settled on those rivers. And on those rivers, like we would have had 40-something different communities in the river systems. And each one would have had a social structure there. We all had specialized roles on these rivers, right? And talking to Bertie Francis, Bertie Francis, him and I were talking about this, they say, okay, we use the word Sagamal sometimes to mean chief. In reality, that word just evolved to mean chief. But Sagamal actually means that head kind of individuals and who is very senior okay. and very wise individual. So we were equal positions. We There was equality. And living on those rivers, we had these kind of bilateral relationships. And you hear a lot of people say, okay, we were patrilineal too, but we were more patrilocal, which just simply means that if my daughter fell in love with Chalon's son, my daughter would go to his river. Mm -hmm. 
or your river. And that's bilateral, and that allows us to build strong relationships on all these rivers. Why this is important to Mi'kmaq to use land like this is because all these rivers have equitable distribution of resources. They're seasonally overlapped, so there's no low period or high period. And it was only when Europeans came here and they started settling on the mouths of rivers that things started to change. Started drawn to European settlements because of trade and stuff like that, right? And when they talk about Mi'kmaq people starving and stuff like that, I only think they're, they're, they're only actually talking until after permanent settlement here. When we got displaced from our rivers and stuff and they started p putting mills and dams and stuff on our rivers. I don't think a lot of people understand cultural memory. That's the hospital over here, the QE2 hospital, and I go over here to um, visit Mi'kmaq people when they're in the hospital. And I was over there with an elderly lady, and she was there for about 30 days before she passed. And um, I'd go over once or twice a day and sit and talk with her, and she'd be telling me stories. After she passed away, I realized, oh my God, I said, she was telling me stories, not only of her life, but of her parents' life, her, her grandparents' life, mm -hmm. her great-grandparents would have still been alive, and she was telling me stories about her great-grandparents' parents' life, and wow. their grandparents, and their great-great-grandparents, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden this history went back about three, four hundred years ago. But now that's an example of cultural memory. But she also used language. Our learning comes through stories and legends and family histories and generational histories over a long period of time. That's where our history gets in and that's why language is important because language talks about that kind of history in very simple terms. You hear people when you get to university or other places, people talking about theory. Theory is kind of a, the framework of supposed to be how you understand something. But that's fine over there on that side of the class, but if we're over here on our side of the classroom, we have to listen to our own kind of what, how we understand ourselves and our past and stuff like that. And you can do that with your language because language becomes your theory and how you interpret it, how you apply it and how you understand it becomes your methodology. So language, language is how you decolonize and if you use language and our interpretation, understanding and uh, of language then you unlock what I think is cultural memory, right? Thank you for listening to Trails, Tales, and Spruce Tea. Well, all into Roger for sharing with us. The music in this episode is a Mi'kmaq song we call Gitpu, Eagle, sung here by singer-songwriter Raymond Sewell. To listen to more of Raymond's own music, please visit his site, soundcloud.com forward slash Raymond Sewell. That's R-A-Y-M-O-N-D-S-E-W-E-L-L. -L. I'm the editor and producer, Shalyn Chaudhry. Hear you all again soon. Now.
make you a lolly. Yeah.